Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks so much for joining me. So, it's your first extra special end of summer Friday episode. Yay! It's a great one, too. Uh, I had a delightful chat with Josh Kolnick, frontman of the band Small Black, and we talked about a mutual favorite of ours, The Last Picture Show, which is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. So this one was really fun for me. A uh, little warning, this conversation is absolutely packed with spoilers, so you should watch the movie before you listen if you're the kind of person who cares about spoilers for 50-year-old movies. Uh, anyway... I loved having the opportunity to talk about this because I love it so much. And I hope the enthusiasm that Josh and I display in this conversation is infectious. I think it will be. So no more delays. Let's get to it. Quick Josh facts. Josh Kolnick is the lead singer and he plays guitar for the Brooklyn-based indie band Small Black. The band began with an emphasis on lo-fi sounds and distorted textures in their initial release, but has since adopted a more varied approach, expanding to include a mix of high and lo-fi sounds, synthetic and acoustic instruments. The underlying elements of synth-heavy production and melodic lyrical vocal style have been a fixture of the band's sound throughout their entire catalog. Small Black released their fourth album, Cheap Dreams, this year, and they are currently on an American tour. Uh, Last Picture Show facts. The Last Picture Show is a 1971 American coming-of-age drama directed and co-written by Peter Bogdanovich, adapted from the semi-autobiographical 1966 novel of the same name by Larry McMurtry. The film stars an ensemble cast that features Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Ellen Burstyn, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, and Sybil Shepard, amongst others. Uh, it is set in a small town in North Texas from November 1951 to October 1952, and it is the story of two high school seniors and longtime friends, Sonny Crawford, played by Timothy Bottoms, and Dwayne Jackson, played by Jeff Bridges. The last picture show was a critical and commercial success and was nominated for eight Academy Awards with wins for... Ben Johnson, and the amazing Cloris Leachman. And there you have it. Uh, let's jump on over to the good stuff. Here comes my chat with Josh Kolnick about The Last Picture Show. So do you, do you remember uh, seeing it the first time? Yeah, I probably saw it like in college. You know, I think it kind of lands with you in a different way at that age. Like mm. you kind of are a little bit closer to the, the characters themselves. Totally. Like especially 
the high school characters and you kind of know that feeling of rejection and like loneliness and you know that is it ever gonna change right which as you get a little older you kind of get you get past that and you, you or a little bit you just kind of you've been through a couple rounds so you, you know that you know there is something around the corner generally but i think at that age it's really easy to like just think nothing might ever happen in your life and i think the movie re- really reflects that yeah and also just like i think i actually saw it for the first time when i was in high school and that feeling of just kids can be dumb and selfish and hurt each other and uh do things that they regret really easily and there are things that feel absolutely monumental at the time and when you you know have some perspective when you're not in high school anymore it's like oh my god i can't believe that people were that upset about those things and there are definitely things in this movie that have bigger repercussions than just uh dumb kids being dumb but um there's a little bit of that that feeling that it's feels much more realistic in terms of coming of age stuff than a lot of movies um just like allowing space for characters to be flawed and not be skeletal like archetypes of of high school students yeah i I think just all the characters even even like the minor ones they really come to life through the actors and yeah i I think it just rang true for me more so than any other movie dealing with high school students than i'd ever seen and you know it just didn't it didn't feel like this idealized sort of i I mean it's funny that that it's set in the 50s because it's the most idealized period in a lot of ways for I guess for white America, you know, and mm. this like small town in Texas and to see the same sort of problems you saw everywhere else as it's kind of fading into a new thing, which is, you know, you know, becomes the sixties after that. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating moment where like it's shot, it's 71. It's people at that moment reflecting on the fifties and kind of within that time period, kind of destroying the, the American fifties with the the late sixties and early seventies countercultural in, in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I think that really struck me the first time that I was watching it, that I was like a 1970s, early 1970s version of the 1950s. Yeah. And initially I think seeing that it was in black and white kind of, you know, as a kid, I was just like, Oh God, black and white. It's so boring. Um, but it really helps helped me to kind of uh, immerse myself in that time period. Cause it's like, you know, the fifties weren't in black and white, but that's kind of uh, evocative of at least movies of that time period. Um, a lot of them. Shocking to see the, the sex and the nudity. Totally. It doesn't add up with, you know, movies I watched with my mom as a kid, like, you know, Cary Grant or uh, a lot of the movies that, you know, Peter Bogdanovich was obsessed with, you know, he's kind of almost waving goodbye to them with this movie. Mm-hmm with its adult themes in this ideal black and white landscape. Yeah. But I think that is so much more honest as well. It's like, yeah, people had sex in the 1950s and did wild things and got naked. And a lot of films, not just made in the 50s, but about the 50s, presented as a very sterile, sanitized time when everybody was, the public face was always just this very polite, kind of Victorian almost uh, way of behaving. And that's just not, not reality. Yeah. What was the, uh, the Todd Haynes movie? Oh, Far From Heaven. I feel like <laughs> that was like almost like the early 2000s version of like, 
kind of taking the piss out of the 50s yeah. like portrayal on screen. Um, yeah, it, it's it just feels so real to me. And I, I, I really think the, you know, I think the female characters are particularly strong in this film, especially for the time period. Yeah. Um, it's Ellen Burstyn, Cloris Leachman, and um, Eileen Brennan. Mm-hmm. I, I just think they're all so, I don't know, they just feel so real. And, and they're kind of like the, at least, you know, Ellen Burstyn's character, Lois, I think is like the most in touch with herself or the most honest with herself of maybe everyone in the movie. Yeah. And she, her scenes, I think with Sybil Shepard, uh, the mom and daughter scenes are just, they're pretty heartbreaking. And also they just feel so real. And it's funny. Cause I feel like she goes from this into, uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore, which is another one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Um, and she's a very different sort of mother figure in that movie. And it's so cool to kind of see her change. And she's just such a wonderful actress. She's really one of my favorites ever. Yeah. And I think that's another interesting thing is not just like with movies about the 50s, but movies about teenagers that a lot of times the parents are part of a, a side plot and don't get much time. And their role is to really provide framework for the story about the teenagers. And this really allows all of the characters to be equally complex. And like you said, I think the adults have the more uh, compelling narratives going on. And these actors who are just like, you know, I was thinking about this, like I, I don't teach acting classes, but if I did, <laughs> I would show people this movie and just like that fucking scene, the last scene with Cloris Leachman just absolutely tears me apart. And it's yeah. like such skill, such like sensitivity. And that was one take. Yeah, I know. I was, I watched an interview with her for this and uh, yeah, she's, she, she was as Peter Bogdanovich to do it again. He's like, absolutely not. Like we're never doing that scene ever again. It's like as a musician, like I, I kind of like, I know that feeling too of like doing a vocal and being like, I could do it better. And, and sometimes you really need someone in the room to be like, just stop. Like, yeah. That's the one. Just shut up. So right. Talk. Yeah. So. And like from the beginning, he was pitching that role to her as the role that will win you an Oscar. And then after she did that take, he's like, you just want an Oscar. And then she did. <laughs> Like, absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, something I've always thought about this movie is it really feels, and I guess the book, too, is it feels like an update of one of my favorite books, um, Winesburg, Ohio, by uh, Sherwood Anderson. And the last scene really, like, hammers it home to me, the the focusing on the hands, which is, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the book. Like, mm-hmm. the, uh, it's a book of short stories about Ohio and the th- uh, in the twenties. And it's, it's all centered around this narrator, George Willard, who is, I think very much like Timothy Bottoms character in that he's just kind of like this youthful kind of hope for the town. And it just, he interacts with all the different people in, in the town and they're all, it's just a kind of about their loneliness and their isolation. And one of the most famous stories is called hands. And it's about this sort of disgraced teacher who had to flee a school because he was, he was kind of, he was gay, I think, and he was accused of touching uh, a student. And he ends up in this town in Ohio, and he ends up using his hands to kind of like be a farmer. And it's just all about what's happened to his hands in, in that change in, in profession and his loneliness. And I don't know. I just feel like there is like a real connection. And 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 it, and I, it's that's really one of my all time favorite books. It's something I've always been trying to rip off in songs <laughs> and then 
in work that I do. So it's really cool to feel like that story kind of got passed down. Like I was looking for reviews that maybe mentioned it and I did find like the New York Times book review from 66. Hmm. Like it's in like, its first or second paragraph. So I think I think I was right on, on that it being like a touchstone for Larry McMurtry. Yeah, yeah. And like it, it is the detail that, um, you know, really expresses so much emotion in this and not to harp on about that particular moment too much. But in addition to like watching Cloris Leachman and Timothy Bottoms holding hands, like the the way that he moves towards her, the way that they hold each other's hands, it's also just like the subtlety of her facial expressions moving from like anger to kind of hope to sort of resignation and just like looking at him and realizing he's basically a child and like you know that she was hoping for something that could never actually be and all of that is conveyed with no words at all yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of that in their relationship like her painting the room blue and Mm -hmm. very like much referencing it and blue i feel like is the blue baby color for you know for a boy baby and that's the first thing i thought of and i think it's it's so amazing in black and white to watch her paint and know what she's doing, even though you obviously don't because you can't see the color of it. So I feel like, yeah, there's like a bunch of references to that and things that she does, not in things that she says. And then it kind of all comes to a head in that last scene that I get through her facial expressions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I think just like both with uh, her character and, and Alan Burstyn's character, you know, you, you, know a little bit more about the man who Alan Burstyn's character is involved with, but I think you learn more about her and her relationship and him through what she talks about and her experiences. And um, the same thing goes for Cloris Leachman, like her husband, you know, the gym teacher, you barely, he, you know, has a couple lines, but that's it. And you learn so much about the dynamic of their relationship just through the very subtle uh, little turns of phrase or uh, the way that she looks at things, the way that she moves. And yeah, just having such a, a tremendously skilled cast. And even the young people who've barely done anything in their careers. Sybil Shepard's first movie, I think. So yeah. it's like major stars careers launched through this one. So totally. Yeah. And you can see it. It's like, you know, I, I think the skill of Peter Bogdanovich who is like a New York guy being able to come to this like Dust Bowl town in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and paint this picture of this sort of desolate town and this story that's like both about hope and hopelessness in equal measure and having the skill at such an early stage in his career. Like I think he he directed two other movies before this, but nothing that got much attention and having the skill to like be able to choose people who so embody these characters. And like, I just can't imagine them being any other people. No, the casting is so perfect. You know, the story is that uh, Peter Bogdanovich's wife, Polly Platt, who is like very much involved in the movie. There's, there's a, by a lot of accounts, like is kind of like a second director of the movie in a lot of ways. Like there's this whole podcast out. I mean, I knew a lot about this, but I, I listened to this podcast about her over the past week. And it, it just like, he kind of never, he made this. And then she worked on what's up doc and paper moon and on none of the rest of his movies. And I, I mean, 
the podcast kind of insinuates that a lot of these decisions were her. I, I know the, the Sybil Shep- Shepherd casting, she basically saw her on the cover of a magazine in the supermarket and showed it to Peter Bogdanovich, which is just like, you know, pretty wild because she ends up being the person that kind of dissolves their marriage. Yeah. Like, there's so much drama on the set to go with the movie, which you, you then see reflected in like, you know, especially in, in the Cloris Leachman and Timothy Bottoms affair where they're, they're like, you know, they're like kissing behind the dance. This is like brazen. Like mm. you're right out the open. Even when uh, Ellen Burstyn kisses the sort of terrifying oil guy right? while her husband is just right there at this dance. It's just so brazen. It's so like, it's almost a reflection of what's really, what's going on on set between those two. It, it's, there's no way that doesn't seep deeply into the movie and like give it some of its edge, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. It, it's yeah. You really, I can't think of like a better casted movie ever, you know, right. <laughs> like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it, that is a, a really good point, especially about that, that dance floor moment where Alan Burstyn like grabs this guy and is bringing him onto the dance floor. And the woman who he's with, that is, that it, is his wife, I can't remember, but she's like, what are you, what are you doing? You can't do that. And she's just like, fuck you. <laughs> and takes him and brings him, starts like slow dancing with him. Wild. It's so over the top. And yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just brazen is the only word I can think of to describe it. There's just no consideration for anybody else's wants except your own. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I think it reflects her character. She's kind of alpha number one hmm. because she has to be in, in a, in a, in a cool way, you know, I think it which is like kind of countered by her story about Ben Johnson at the end right. and her of like weakness isn't the word just of like tenderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like she, she, you know, you, you said this, but um, she seems like the character who really has the most holistic picture of everything that's going on in the town. And she really understands all the relationships between people and all of the kind of secret things that are going on. And it, there's no bullshit. It's like, you know, he's like confronts Timothy Bottoms. Like, yeah, we knew that affair was going on for six months. Come on, man. <laughs> right. Right. And just kind of laughs at him like, duh, of course, <laughs> like you weren't being careful. <laughs> <sighs> but I think having that character who's like, I don't know, she's not a, a big enough presence throughout the movie to like qualify as like a pseudo narrator or anything, but it's like she, in in a way, I think the the adult women act as like anchors for the rest of the cast, and definitely are the people who the the feeling of loss, at least to me, I think seeing it again as an adult, the kind of longing, and even though these are people who try to find happiness in whatever way they can. All three of those women feel like they are just kind of looking back on their lives and feeling this kind of yearning and seeing all of these young people being stupid, making bad decisions, doing whatever, and realizing that it's like they still are at a place where they can move on from the dumb things they've done or change their minds and make other decisions and they're not stuck in this town. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I think it, it... Sorry, I'm having... A- trouble figuring out where to segue here um i think the you know the ben johnson character is like you know the moral sort of compass of the movie and it's it's kind of so telling that he had this affair with ellen burston's character and Mm -hmm. it's clear they're like the two most aware in the movie of 
the town and the situation and they just you know they just have they seem compatible in a way you know like they, they're just not full of shit right like some of the other folks are and it's just i don't know it's the i mean the scene of of ben johnson you know the monologue at the the fishing hole is all time and mm-hmm. i don't know it's just got that feeling of what life actually is like what what a romance is and something that him explaining it to the timothy bottoms character he's not gonna really get it right. until later yeah. You know, I'm sure that, that character would look back on that 10 years later after having a little bit more experience in life and really get what that means. But it, it it's just so powerful and it really like makes you love both of those characters. I, I can't remember if the first time you see it, if you insinuate that that woman is uh, Ellen Burstyn or not. But I guess every time I've watched it since, you know, I know who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So it maybe lands even more. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember if there are any clues in that respect, or if, if you're even like thinking about who it could be in the cast or wondering if it's somebody in the cast. But uh, yeah, and that's interesting as well. Like that character, Sam the Lion, really is like the the glue that's holding the town together. You know, he when he dies, not only is it like, you know, these young boys have lost this person who's kind of a mentor who they looked up to and... Uh, Ellen Burstyn's lost the love of her life, but also just, you know, the picture show, the pool hall, uh, the diner, all of these things that he's like trying to pass on to people who he thinks will be able to handle taking care of them and people who he trusts. And all of them are just like, I can't do this without him. And everything starts to kind of crumble. Yeah. He gives the preacher's son a thousand dollars and then he buys a car and kidnaps a girl. Right. You know. The Timothy Bottoms character gets the pool hall, and then when he tries to kind of run off with JC, like the first thing the dad says when he annuls the marriage is, she's like, she ain't living in no pool hall. Right. So it almost becomes like an anchor on him rather than something that's like, like a gift. And you know, and and the movie theater closes. So right. Yeah, it's what do you leave behind? And according to this movie, maybe not much. But, right. Yeah. And these things that are supposed to be gifts, like he wants to set people up for a better life and they end up being burdens, you know, like Timothy Bottoms character having to take on another job to be able to try and make it work with the pool hall. And yeah, I guess like that's this kind of uh, optimism that a lot of uh, or that character in particular has that he is this person who tries to see the best in people and is, you know, wanting people to succeed and wanting people to do great things with their lives. And then I guess maybe Ellen Burstyn is the kind of flip side of that, that she's a bit more cynical and a bit more uh, realistic about the way that the world works. Um, and like you said, the really frank conversations with Sybil Shepherd, where it's, you know, just like no bullshit. And from a character like that, when, you know, in teen movies, when it's like the rich girl who, you know, is her parents' princess, you wouldn't expect that kind of frank discussion to happen. Um, so it's, it's actually quite refreshing. Yeah, I would definitely want to hang out with Ellen Burstyn. She seems real cool. <laughs> character. I like people that just tell me how it is. That's kind of what I look for in friends. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is just absolutely an incredible actor. And like, yeah, just thinking, have you seen Requiem for a Dream? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, brutal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, not a cheery film. I told somebody I had... I was talking about how I would just buy the saddest movies of all time on DVD like in the early 2000s, like, like buying Requiem for Dream. It's like, that's not getting past two plays ever. Like, like right. I'm not 
I'm never watching this movie for a third time. There's no no need to own this. Really. Yeah, yeah. It's so brutal. Yeah, it's a real endurance test. It really is, yeah. Yeah, I can remember thinking that, you know, Darren Aronofsky was setting himself up for a career of just abject misery. And, you know, he's he's managed to make some movies that are not quite that miserable, but he's still got quite a, a streak in him. <laughs> I also just like the... I don't know. I actually don't know how much direct involvement Larry McMurtry had in this film, but you know, this book is meant to be semi autobiographical as well. So I can imagine for him that it was quite a, uh, an overwhelming experience having, you know, this story that's like at least in the same lane as your real experience being put on screen and and it's little it's shot in the town i mean the locations are probably the locations where all this stuff actually happened you know right. i guess the story was that he and bogdanovich were driving around texas and then they had found like one place they liked and they came back to archer city where he was from and peter bogdanovich was like this place is perfect <laughs> larry mcmurtry said uh duh this is where it, where it actually happened of course it is <laughs> So, yeah, that I mean, that must have been weird for him. I wonder how much he was on set. Like, I know they were kind of rewriting scenes, like, the whole the whole time. So he, he might have been there a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the one element of uh, prepping for this that I didn't really get into very much. But I wonder um, which uh, bits, which characters are him. him. Yeah. I like Dwayne. Mm-hmm. That's who he follows as like the main character through the next two books. So mm. I feel like maybe he sees himself as that character, but I'm not sure. You know, yeah. I know that they said like I watched the making of Doc and, and they said they would walk around the town and people would, be, you know, actors would somebody would tell them this is like this is the real Dwayne mm. or this is the real um, Lois, you know. Mm. So it's a really interesting way to do it. Movies don't usually get that close to to the source material so yeah yeah it's also funny that like peter bogdanovich <laughs> said when he was when he cast jeff bridges that he was like yeah you know he was a really good actor he's like you know uh, a really nice guy really easy to work with but i also thought that it was interesting to have somebody who's such a nice guy and who's so easygoing playing uh, a character who's kind of a, a dickhead <laughs> so like imagining larry mcmurtry uh Right, you know, coming across that uh, description of that character. Yeah, uh, I watched another interview with Larry McMurtry, and he was talking about Lonesome Dove, hmm. and he claimed that he had never watched it, hmm. and he claimed, and he said he hated the casting of Robert Duvall as the <laughs> character, which is like, oh my god, this is the whole reason why people love this this miniseries. Like, it's Duvall <laughs> carries the whole thing. <laughs> So it's hilarious kind of what, how, you know, artists or writers like sometimes are just distant from what makes people really like their work. And maybe that's, what's kind of good about it. Yeah. Kind of let things go at a certain point. Right. Like, I think, you know, even if it's not an adaptation, like I know people who are playwrights and they do not like being excluded from the process when, when people are making their work, they want to really be involved and like shape what the production looks like. So yeah, I can imagine it's quite difficult having your work adapted in any way. For sure. Especially when it's something that's this like close to your own experience and, you know, feels quite autobiographical. But you know, the, with this, it felt like whatever collaboration was allowed, it worked. And 
obviously the movie was a big hit and won a bunch of Oscars and whatever. So sure. Um, I feel very satisfied. Cool. I think this was a, a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was really fun. I, I hope I, uh, I made sense. Yes, so. very much so. Yeah. <laughs> um, great. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was so much fun. Thanks again to Josh for making time for me. You can stream and download Small Black's latest album, Cheap Dreams, right now. And you can see them live in select American cities through October. Check small-black.com for details. Okay, my inspirational work of the week is just the last picture show. I know that seems like a bit of a cop-out, but truly, ugh, I love this movie so much. And I really want you to see it if you haven't seen it, or revisit it if you have. It's every bit as good as I remembered, and really, that last scene with Cloris Leachman, oof. I can't get it out of my head, so just watch it, all right? Uh, that's it for this week. Um, back next Wednesday and Friday for another end of summer double dose. Please post about this show on your social media and tag me in it. I'm at Spark Parade everywhere. Um, it'll be fun. You'll like it. And it'll raise awareness of this show and help it to grow big and strong. It's the equivalent of this show eating its vegetables. Uh, and that's it. Have a nice weekend. I want you to do at least five fun things, and that's a minimum, not a maximum. Uh, and until next time, bye-bye. Hey there, Robo fans and Dino fans. Do you like science fiction? Do you like movies about robots and dinosaurs? Do you like podcasts that explore sci-fi philosophy through a fun and positive lens? Then you are going to love Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Every week, your host, Louis G, invites a guest onto the show to talk about one of their favorite sci-fi movies. It's a Robocast. It's a Dinocast. It's a battle for ultimate awesomeness in science fiction pop culture. Subscribe to Robots vs. Dinosaurs on Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Friday. Follow us on Instagram at Robos B Dinos or Twitter at Versus Robots. That is at VS Robots. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.